The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by my colleague Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Assemblyman Kevin McCarty. Democrat Sacramento, and also the 7th District, which, by the way, ignores my neighborhood. I thought I'd point that out, but just barely. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And who knows, they're going to draw his new maps in a few months. Uh, I could have you in my district. Um, I know we need to call Paul Mitchell. Yeah, I'll call Paul, too, about that. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to ask. You had a good year, legislative year, on issues as they were supported by your colleagues and got signed by the governor and the budget. One of them was breakfast for school children, which I'm told is the first in the nation like this. Can you talk about that a little bit? What exactly is it? What's it do? Yeah, well, take a step back. It wasn't a good budget. This literally was a, the best budget in the history of California as far as funding our school system, education from early ed to K-12 to higher ed. You know, it was a great budget as well. We save money for a rainy day focus on healthcare and other investment, but, but my focus is on the education side. I chair the budget committee overseeing education finance. So we literally have five to 10, you know, groundbreaking, you know, uh, transformational acts in this budget. Uh, one of them is universal school meals. And our research shows that there are, you know, way too many kids living in poverty going to our, our public school system. You know, here in my district, a third of the kids are living in poverty as a whole, uh, but you look at our public school population, it's, it's greater. Some, in some communities, it's, you know, well over 50% and close to the majority of the, of the schools and school district. And so too many kids, they go to school hungry and it's hard to learn. And so really uh, school meals focus on success for our students. And then um, also there are some students who maybe don't qualify for, for free, but they're lower income and they, put their money on their meal cards and, you know, their mom or dad or grandma can't pay the meal card. And so they don't have a chance to get breakfast or lunch that day. And um, sometimes we, kids literally get shamed because they have to get these, these alternative lunches from the school district, literally. And so this just knocks all that nonsense out of there. Um, you know, we have to do a bunch of paperwork determining who is or who's not. And the majority of our kids qualify. So for a little bit more, we could just make 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 it universal. So it's it's a standard operating practice. You go to school, you get a book, a pencil, you get water, food, food's an element as well. So if you don't want it, of course, you can opt out. But also make school meals universal for all public schools. And yes, we will be the first state in the nation to do this. Now, and we're talking about an ongoing program. Uh, one of the issues that always comes up in California is that when you have, when you're flush with money, it seems like it's going to go on for quite a while. But if you have lots of ongoing programs, you can, your surplus can disappear pretty quickly. We got in trouble 20 years ago or so, I think it was with Davis with programs. There was a balloon, a big bubble, and then bubble burst. Is this fundable when we don't have the kind of surplus we've got now? Yeah. I mean, a lot of things we're doing here one time in the budget and we're, we're saving north of $25 billion for a rainy day, which we never had during those recession uh, years um, during Gray Davis or even Schwarzenegger and, and the early parts of Jerry Brown. So we, we do say for when we do have a recession, because we, we will have one, the economy will, will dip down a bit in the future, like all, um, yeah. all, 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 you know, times of us history have shown us. Um, 
And, uh, you know, we do predict, uh, you know, ongoing revenue and company that allows us to do some huge uh, pieces that will, you know, really change. These will change um, lives in California, you know, change outcomes for schools. So, you know, universal school meals, you know, one of the big things that I've been, you know, fighting for for over nearly a decade is universal uh, pre-K to make sure that all four-year-olds have a year of publicly funded pre-K. So we're, we have that in the budget as well, the VR transitional kindergarten program. We dramatically increase uh, child care slots as well. So we do have some of these things for ongoing um, expenditures, but we do have uh, revenues ongoing to pay for these. This, this is a balanced and responsible approach. What's the universal uh, transitional kindergarten? What's, yeah. what's, what's it that involved with? Yeah, so essentially we have traditional kindergarten now in California if you're born during the fall. So if you are lucky enough to have a, a parent has a child born between September 1st and December 1st, you get a free year of publicly funded pre-K. Uh, we didn't have it for the rest of the, of, the, of the kids in California, which doesn't seem fair. And, you know, big picture is too many kids have no access to early education. So now we're going to have, uh, through our public school system, uh, traditional kindergarten for all four-year-olds, regardless of income. So this is a big win for families, especially middle-class families, because in some of these areas, you know, if you make here in Sacramento or my district, if you make, you know, $50,000, $60,000, let's say a family of three, you know, you, you're too, you're too rich to get the free subsidized pre-K, but you're too poor to pay the thousand bucks a month or more, which it costs to go to a private program. That costs as much as UC Berkeley. So, so many of our families just get, get left behind. So this will make it universally accessible um, pre-K through, through traditional kindergarten programs, which are gonna be at all public schools. Um, in addition, we are greatly expanding subsidized childcare as well and increasing the reimbursement rates. So in total, we talked about this recently the budget just passed over $6 billion in ongoing money for, for early ed. This is the biggest piece of new money in the budget. And this is a piece which has been embraced by Democrats and Republicans and frankly economists, because they say, if you want to make a difference in kids' lives as far as educational success, you know, um, lifelong earnings and actually, you know, keeping kids out of the criminal justice system. One thing you can focus on, is early education. So this is what this was our North Star issue we wanted to focus with the budget, and we did. We knocked it out of the park. Did you see support uh, in your surveying or polling when you're putting the legislation together for this? Is this something? Is this something parents really want? Yeah, especially you know middle class families who just miss out. You know, let's face it. A lot of times, government has programs that that that, that help people who don't have anything, and we need that. We need to help out people who are living in poverty. And then, you know, you know, the wealthy families can fend for themselves, but whether it's higher education costs or early education, you know, we don't always take care of others who are missing out. Um, and then, you know, some of our working parents who are eligible for, let's say, subsidized childcare, but there's a massive waiting list. So our actions in the budget this year is going to cut the waiting list waiting list in, in half. So we're going to not only have this, this TK for four-year-olds, but greatly expand access for childcare, you know, for, for, for all kids and for all working parents who want to either go to work or go to school and make sure they have someone, someplace to save, a safe place to send their kid. Okay. So the pre-K, uh, this exists in other states. Were you studying programs in other places to, to sort of model this on or were we sort of uh, inventing this as on the fly? 
Yeah, we, absolutely. This is one where, frankly, California has not been leading. Kind of embarrassing that, you know, we lead in the environment and civil rights and um, so many issues, climate change, you know, um, gun violence prevention. But in this issue, there's red states and blue states that have already done universal pre-K for four-year-olds. You know, Oklahoma, New Jersey, Florida, um, New York, um, D.C. has done it. So we've looked at other states, but also we already actually have it here in California. Just as I mentioned earlier, if you're lucky, if you happen to have a kid who's born in the fall, you, you get this. So we've had a pilot essentially for 10 years. We know it's been working. There's been research by, um, you know, Rand and others, AIR and others that, that, that show, you know, tremendous gains for kids who have been through these TK programs and schools throughout California. So we're, 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 I know people are saying it's a new grade, but really we're expanding what we already have via TK. Is this connected somehow to uh, smaller class sizes? That was a big thing a few years ago. Then the budget went south. We weren't able to continue with smaller classroom Sizes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. You know, we, I mean, I could spend an hour talking about just this, but we can't just have, you know, free pre-K and call today. It needs to be high quality for it to work. So one thing that we insisted is having uh, ratios that are appropriate for, you know, child development and frankly, sometimes the sanity of the teachers. So uh, we, we have it where all classrooms will be no more than one adult for 12 kids. So think of it in a, class, in a TK classroom, you know, max um, 24 kids and two teachers, one lead teacher and one part professional. So that'll really, um, you know, help make sure that, uh, you know, it's workable for both the students and also the educators. One thing, I just want to make sure I understand the way the dates play out here. Traditionally, kindergarten is uh, September through June, just traditionally. And if you're born, yeah. as you were saying, if you're born in the fall, does that mean then you take advantage of that of that time period right away? If you're not, you have to wait uh, for a semester, for example, or however you would describe it. But is that the difference between this and the way it's been done traditionally? Yeah, well, not to make it too complicated, you always start in, in the in the fall. But we cut a deal ten years ago. We said historic. We, we said, look, we don't want kids starting kindergarten if they're four in September, October, November. We want all kids to be five when they start kindergarten. But we said, you know, for 56 years in California, we've always funded kids who are born during the fall, who turn five by December. So we said for those cohort going forward, we'll create a new grade, TK. So we did that since 2010. So for 11 years, we've been doing it, but it's a big inequity as we said earlier. So now we're just going to expand these TK classrooms to be at all sites. And, and you know what, it's not gonna be easy, or you can't do this, you can't just you know flip the switch and do it overnight. We need to hire more teachers, we need to make sure we um, you know, adapt classrooms because TK classrooms even have you know little sinks and kid, little bathrooms so kids can't be wandering around the school campus. So this is gonna be done over a number of years. We have a phase, we have first year's planning, and then we'll be phasing it in over a couple years, for a few years after that. So it allows some early transition and, and to ramp up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, moving on to older kids. <laughs> so yeah. uh, one of the pieces of legislation that you, you, you uh, authored was on affordable student housing with the notion that available affordable student housing is going to be gradually disappearing by 2030 as there'll be more students coming in, there'll be housing available for them. And the idea is to get 
more housing available, have the schools participate, get a construction program going at the campuses. Where, how is that playing out? Where is that now? Yeah, we, that, that is kind of unfinished business. We, we've set aside $2 billion to come back later in the summer to focus on um, UC and CSU expansion as well as student housing. But the bigger pieces for higher education this budget that really are, again, transformational is the fact that we are, you know, expanding financial aid, the largest increase ever for our Cal Grant program, middle class scholarship. That, you know, 150,000 community college students used to, you know, apply for Cal Grant and get, you know, cut out because they didn't win the lottery to get the award. Now it'll be an entitlement like high school students. You know, we're going to give supplemental awards for Cal Grant recipients to pay for non-tuition costs. You know, that's how students get in so much debt today. This crazy debt those students have isn't because of tuition, because so many of them get aid through Pell or Cal Grant. They don't pay tuition, but it's through books and housing and transportation and food, all these other costs. So, you know, we're, we're, we are really stepping up to try to make college debt-free in California. You know, that sounds like uh, uh, something that's, you know, altruistic and can't happen, but uh, we're on a path to make college debt-free by, by reforming our financial aid. And we're spending over a billion dollars on going for that. But the biggest thing that we're doing in higher ed is increasing admission slots. So many of um, elected officials go home in their districts and hear about, you know, students who have brilliant grades in high school, apply to a UC campus, can't get in, have to go out of state. And those students and parents are like, hey, what about us? We, we pay taxes. You know, why can't we get into our state universities, especially um, when we're enrolling so many out-of-state students? So this year, we really, uh, you know, uh, turn back the clock on that. And we're, gonna, we're going back and we're, 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 you know, bringing down the number of non-Californians that can get coveted slots at the UC campuses and dramatically expanding uh, California access. Plus, we're doing that at, um, at uh, CSU. So about 9,000 new enrollment slots at CSU and over 6,000 new enrollment slots at UC. And that, again, you know, is, is a huge, huge investment for the families, but also for California. You know, we need more college graduates, you know, to fill the jobs of today and tomorrow. So higher education is a big piece of the puzzle. Certainly affordability is in housing, and we're, we're going to work on that later in the summer. But we will be adopted um, right now in our budget is the access and affordability, uh, the largest actions ever in a state budget. And again, there are multiple things where these are like a bucket list issue for a budget action and, and education from early ed to higher ed. This is one of them. Uh, Kevin, one last question. What, what do you uh, consider the biggest defeat you faced this year? What was the thing that you regretted most not being able to get done in the, in the session so far anyway? You know, looking back, you know, you kind of pinch yourself. Were we able to check off so many boxes and literally so many issues, you know, I, I campaigned and ran on years ago. I was, I was talking to our mayor of Sacramento in the last couple of days about issues that we've both been fighting for for decades and they're, they're in this budget, you know, after school programs, universal now, we didn't talk about that earlier, uh, um, and school meals, universal TK, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of new slots in childcare, increasing the childcare rates to pay living wages. So all these things, higher education access, doubling funding for career technical education. So on all of these lists, you know, any one of these things could have been a major opportunity to spend an hour talking about, but we achieved um, so much. So the keys are keeping it going. Like you said, 
you know, we need to make sure we, we, we um, craft a budget that we're not going to unravel these in the out years. And we think, you know, based on the projections from the LAO, that we are, uh, you know, within our means. Uh, plus, we are saving, setting aside $25 billion for when there is a hiccup in our state budget and our economy. So, um, you know, this is really, you know, checking off all the boxes on our, on our to-do list as far as the budget. But, you know, there's, there's, there's ongoing issues that we haven't tackled yet. There's too, too, still too many people who don't have um, health care in California. There's still too many families who are living in poverty without access to water. So, you know, we have some unfinished business that we'll get back at. But, but uh, the big picture is this was, um, you know, the dream budget for so many of us. Fair enough. Assemblyman McCarty, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. Thank you for your patience, guys. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us today. And now it's time for the person who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. This time, it was an easy call, I think, Tim. We're talking about former Assemblyman Joe Canciamilla, also former supervisor in Contra Costa County, uh, and other positions. He's been a public official for quite some time, fairly well-known in the Capitol, Democrat. Well, he just got sentenced to a year in prison. Uh, with some other things tacked onto it for using campaign funds for personal use. It's kind of the classic violation that, that people, the public officials who get tagged with legal issues and criminal issues, usually this is it. It's using campaign funding, campaign funds for personal issue. In his case, I think it was about 70,000 bucks. Tim, what do you think? I think this is an easy call. <laughs> you know, going to prison for a year, it really, uh, that beats losing an election. It beats, uh, you know, somebody kill your bill. Uh, we'll see. I think he's hoping that they will uh, commute his sentence so that he can serve it on home. And like, I don't know, even that would not be great. Of course, being in prison would be a lot worse. But yeah, I think this was a fairly easy call this week. Yeah. I think um, uh, being able to not serve your sentence in prison is the first number one priority that I'm sure he has and his lawyer has. At least I saw a comment in the story in the Chronicle that reporter Alexei Kosef wrote. Uh, that's the main thrust of the attorneys, keep him out from behind bars and let him serve the sentence in some other fashion. Maybe he'll win, maybe he'll not. Uh, so we'll just have to see. So now you covered him when he was when he was elected here, right? No, not much. I've talked to him before. He was in issues that I was interested in number many years ago. Uh, when, By the way, when was he in the assembly? Well, he was in the assembly late. Uh, my memory is that he was in the assembly late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, it was quite, quite a, quite a long time ago. That's a good question. I just, it's, it's kind of blurry for me now, and I don't remember exactly when. He was a Democrat on the right side of Democratic issues. He, I think, was known as. Uh, now, when you say the right side, do you mean, do you mean the correct side, or he was it, leaning to the right, like more conservative? Oh, no, I don't mean directionally, but I just mean for fellow Democrats, he was a Democratic soldier, and he seemed to, I think that he was known for that, also being pretty effective. So it, this came as a surprise to me right out of the blue. He's, this has been developing over some period of time, but it certainly surprised me. I thought, I thought he was a pretty good lawmaker. Probably surprised him, too. <laughs> yeah, I know, so... So Joe Katsimia, definitely, uh, unfortunately, this was an easy call uh, for the person who had the worst week in California politics. That's, that's all you need to say there. Great. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, this is John Howard saying thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time around. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.